All right, well, good morning. Uh, as uh, Corey mentioned, Stan Reeb was supposed to speak today. He was supposed to preach, and then we found out on Thursday that he's not doing too well and wasn't going to make it. He's not worryingly sick, but just unable to make it. And as Corey said, Myron's been so willing to jump into so many things, and he was the first one to volunteer to, to speak today. But as I talked to him, it was like, well, he was building something from scratch on Friday morning, and at least I had a Bible study that I could wrap up, even though I haven't really had time to hone it in a sermon format, at least I had that advantage, and so that's why I've uh, volunteered to, to do this. But if you want to this morning, open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. And we're going to be continuing. I didn't actually plan on getting to continue this to the, the third part of the trilogy, but here we are, and that's exciting. It's what I've been doing with a lot of the, the home Bible studies. And we're looking in a general way, in a, in a really broad way, about how the beginning and the middle and the end of the story are all interconnected with each other. And so a few weeks ago, just to get it back in our mind, we talked about how God created his kingdom. And we saw these amazing threads of the story and how they develop throughout the whole Bible. We saw that uh, for us, that we are actually like royalty. We have an amazing place in God's kingdom as king and queens under the king. That's who we should be. And then we found out in Genesis 2 that um, the Eden, Garden of Eden, is like a proto-temple, the first pattern of God's temple, and that for us, we are supposed to serve as priests under the high priest. And both of these, in different ways, describe how things should be. But every story has a conflict. Every story has a tension. And that's our human story as well. There's something that's gone wrong. And I think it doesn't take a whole lot of time for us to just look around and realize that the world is not as it should be. Our relationship with God is not right. Our relationship with other people, even people we love, is not right so many times. We hurt one another. We, we look at the news and we see humanity just dev being devastating towards one another. And we see it happen in our own lives against ourselves in small ways and big ways. And there's all the stuff that goes on that is so wrong, just not as it should be. Now the question becomes, what went wrong? What caused this conflict? What caused this tension? What are we supposed to do about it for that matter? And there's lots of different people and different ideas out there that have, have come up on trying to nail down exactly what's wrong with us, that try to describe this world that we see around us and why we see all of this heartache and all of these problems. And some people have said, well, maybe it's because the universe is God, and this is just how God, whatever it is, is working itself out. And so we're just part of the burp of God, so to speak, just the, the, the process of these things going on. Some people have said, well, actually suffering and pain and all this heartache that's going on is just an illusion. It's not really there. We're just imagining it in the grand scheme of things. Some people have tried to point to more earthly things. Well, it's just natural selection. Or some people will say all kinds of things like, well, the thing that's wrong is our education system. The things we know aren't right. Or our leadership isn't right. Our nation isn't right. Some, some people say it's our relationships. If we just focused on relationships and better friendships and 
better romance. Well, maybe those things would fix what's wrong with us. And so each of us, down to every individual, we have an opinion on what's wrong and what to do about it. But we don't at all, as we look at humanity, agree on what's wrong or let alone what to do about it. And so this is where we're at in the biblical story, trying to understand what the biblical worldview of what's wrong in the world is. And we come to Genesis 3, and it has an answer for us. And so if Genesis 1 and 2 are how things should be, then Genesis 3 is what is wrong, and it sets the stage that we can know what we must do about all of this. And so as we read Genesis 3 today, I want you to do like we've been doing and think about the picture that is being drawn. And think about especially the characters in this section and what they're doing. What are the action words? What are the verbs of what these characters are doing today? And so let's read it together. Genesis chapter 3 starts, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And he, this offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the one, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food and until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his Eve wife. His <laughs> yep, his, his wife, named, he named Eve. Because she would become the, the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so as we have read this, let's think about this and maybe make some images that can help us to think through this together, draw some little, little diagrams. And first of all, let's think about this in terms of who the characters are in the story. So who are some of the characters that we read about? Well, first of all, we read about the serpent. Can you guys see that? There's a serpent there. We've heard about serpents before in the story, haven't we? We know that they're part of God's creation. But there's something unique about this one. But let's move on. Who else is there? Adam and Eve? Yeah. So the next one we read about is Eve. And so we'll give her some curly hair. Because that's obviously the best way. I don't know how else to draw it, actually. So, um, and who else was there? So there was Adam. Give him some spiky hair. And then there was God. And I don't know how to draw God either. But what we'll do is we'll draw something about like this. You know, three and one. Something like that. It's, it's, it's an attempt to draw something. So here's the, the main characters that are going to be in this story. But I ask you to think about what the actions that they did are. And so let's think about each of them and the actions that are going on. Think about who they are and what they've been doing. So the very first one is the serpent. <laughs> now, how many of you have ever seen a talking serpent? Yeah, no hands, me either. This is weird. And for an ancient audience, they also didn't see talking serpents around either. So there's something else that's going on here. And I'm just going to try to draw some really quick connections so that you understand who this is. What's going on here? So, I want you to just think with me. Here's this, this serpent, right? And in Hebrew, the word for serpent is nahash. But there's another word, just like in English, we have another word for this kind of creepy crawly creature. We have serpent and snake. So they have nahash and seraphim, serpent and snakes. And when you start to look through the Bible, these are fairly interchangeable. Like the story of Moses in the, the um, wilderness with the Israelites, and there's the serpents that are biting them, and then he, Moses is told by God to hold up a bronze serpent. You kind of remember that story? Well, throughout that story, the terms Nahash and seraphim, snakes and serpents, are used almost interchangeably. One time it even says a serpent snake. It puts them two together just to describe each other. And so you can see that there's a lot of overlap. And when we see that, then we can go and look for other times that there is the word seraphim. 
And one of the other times that we find this word is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, which is where Isaiah is in the throne room, in the temple of God. And there are these creatures that are worshiping God, and they are called seraphim. And it sounds weird to say that there are snakes there worshiping him, but what we need to see is that there are these spiritual beings that God has created, and for whatever reason, we can have a good, fun discussion at another time. They use the same name as snakes as for these spiritual beings. In ancient times, they actually tried to depict this kind of a creature a lot, and they called them the gods. I had a picture. Let me see if I can pull it up really fast here. This is an image that was pulled up from King Tut's tomb of a spiritual being that looks like a snake. That was their rendition of it. And it comes up all over in the ancient Middle East that this was a way of thinking about some sort of a spiritual being that's out there. Some came to worship it as a god, falsely, obviously, but it was in people's minds during that time. And so here now is a snake or a serpent in the throne room of God. And it's a spiritual being. That's why he's talking. There's something more going on there. But he's not a good one. (laughs) He's he's a bad, bad one. And what we see him doing, and when we look at the, the verb that describes what he's doing, he starts to do what God and mankind are doing to create good, but he does it twisted. It says that he speaks to the woman. And before, we said that when God speaks, it created life and goodness. But when the serpent speaks, it all goes bad. And it actually creates the chaos and the emptiness and the darkness that God was rescuing everything from, that God was creating more order into and out of to make good things. Satan wants to return it, or the serpent wants to return it to that. Now, we also come to find out, and I kind of let it slip, that this serpent who speaks is also comes to be known as Satan, which means literally a deceiver. He's taking God's good, and he's twisting it and stating it as if God's good isn't good. And that's who the serpent is. We live in a world that we don't like to think about the spiritual world. We don't think that it maybe even exists. But in the Bible picture, one of the reasons that things have gone wrong Remember, that's the question that we're asking. What went wrong with the world? What is the biblical worldview? Is that there is a spiritual world that God has created. They are, all these spiritual beings are under God as creation, not the creator, but they exist. And some of them, we find out through the Bible, work against God, work and and resist and are contrary to what God's good would be. And that's a little bit of what's going wrong. But there's another person here or another being, and it's a human being. And this first one that we read about is Eve. And here she is. She's listening to the snake and, you know, processing probably what he's saying. And just as he's been twisting God's words, and if you read it, he's not saying what God actually said. So she also starts to get to a point where she is not speaking exactly what God said purely as well. God never said, don't go touch of this fruit, but she tagged that on. And so you see something in her is distorting and changing, and she's starting to replace what God said and the purity of what God said with what she wants to see. And so she starts to look at this thing God has called bad, the fruit, 
And she starts to say, well, actually, that looks good. That can, that can give me wisdom. It's desirable. Maybe it will produce good instead of what God says is going to produce good. God says it'll do bad, but I'm going to, t- to see this as a good thing. And so she takes that good, and if you look at the word, that's an action verb. She sees it. And so you might start that over. She looks at it. She sees it. And then she, what's the next action word? word? She takes it. So she reaches out and she takes it. And then the third action word that comes right there is that she eats it. She consumes it. Um, those are teeth. It's bad that I have to explain what I'm drawing. But, but she consumes it. She makes it a part of herself. She, she takes what God said don't take part in, and she makes it a part of herself. Now, this is a pattern of what goes on with all of us as well. This is a pattern of how um, sin goes for us. We see something that God says is not good, or, yeah, not good, and we start to think, well, maybe it'll produce good in my life. Maybe it'll be, make me more happy. Maybe it'll give more peace. Maybe it'll give me more joy, more pleasure. Maybe it's just more ease in life. And we replace that instead of the good that, ha- that God had intended for us. We see it wrong. We believe the lie that something bad is actually something good. And that is how sin takes place in every single one of us. And so often, and in so many more ways than sometimes we even realize. But this pattern is actually the same pattern that we see throughout Scripture as well of how sin takes place. You can probably think of a few times when sin is taking place of where someone saw something, they took it, and then they consumed it or made it a part of them, really involved themselves in it. One time, um, as you are reading through the Bible, I'll just hit a couple of them as highlights, is when uh, Potiphar's wife sees that Joseph is pleasing to the eye, same words as in Genesis, and she tries to take him. Thankfully, he runs and disappears, and he saves himself from also taking part of this. But you see that pattern. There was almost the same kind of a fall in Potiphar's wife. When you read the story about Israelites, the Israelites in the wilderness and the golden calf, it's the same kind of idea. They take the gold, and they make something out of it, and then they kind of consummate. They, they, they make a party out of it. They make a worship thing out of it. They make that a part of their lives. Or in a very, very clear example, you can think of King David, and he sees Bathsheba, and look for those three words next time you read it. He sees her, she takes her, he takes her, and then he consummates the relationship. And so there's those same three patterns again and again. But it also goes on, and it gets passed on, just like Adam takes, or Eve takes the, the fruit and gives it to Adam. And so... She passes it on to Adam, and he also eats of it. And this is also a pattern that we see going on in the Bible. There's a time, and and there will be other examples if you look for it, but just for one of them, when there is a time uh, that 
Abraham and Sarah are wanting to have an offspring. And God promises that it's going to happen. God promises this good thing is going to happen, but they don't see it happening. And so Sarah takes, takes their slave and gives her to Abraham. And so the same pattern happens as well. And so sin can get passed on from one person to the next. It's kind of like a sickness where we infect ourselves with this sin. We fall short of what God has intended for us. We see good, uh, something bad as good. And, but then we want to pass it on to the next person and the next person. And we want to infect the next person. Or we even do just passively sometimes. But regardless, it goes on and on. And so what we find is that each and every one of us have failed to serve God and worship God as he intended. We have failed to protect God's good. And even in doing that, we pass it on and pass it around. But that results in all kinds of bad things in our lives. And there's a series of them that we can read about right here in this passage of the, the results of all of this sin, of all of this brokenness that happens. And so let's just draw out some of those things that are going on that are getting worse and worse because of us taking God's good and replacing it with our own good, our own definition of good. Well, one of the very first things is that we find that our, our role with God as image bearers is broken. We no longer serve God rightly. And in fact, where there was supposed to be co uh, unity, there's uh, a connection between male and female in serving as God's imagers with different roles, yet still with the same and equal status and dignity. Now, it says that the woman's desire is to overcome, that's the idea, desire to overcome her husband, the man, and he will rule over her. And so there's this disjointed, not intended distinction between the two. And I, I, we see that brokenness in all kinds of relationships. It happens between men and women, but it also happens between just people in general, where we were all supposed to have this unity and dignity. We always seem to have this power struggle that goes on in the world, in our own hearts, with people we know, but also just as we look in a very general sense as well, this, this de- desire is there to overcome one another rather than live and serve equally as kings and queens under God. Another thing that happens is that Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They no longer have presence, uh, get to be in God's presence. They no longer get to enjoy being with him day in and day out. And so that is lost as well. And in fact, God has shut the way for them to come back. And so that's a problem. Another thing that happens is that we are all going to die. Death comes and well, God is gracious and they didn't die right away, but Adam and Eve do die. There's a physical death that happens, but behind this, there's also a spiritual death where we're supposed to be eternal beings with God. There's now an eternal death that comes along with this. We will die physically and we will die spiritually. We are dead spiritually when we sin. And this is a major problem. And we see how this happens in our everyday lives too. The death, the destruction, the the just ugliness that happens in the world around us. Sadly, it also affects our fruitfulness, being productive, being uh, just getting to see new things be developed and created. And 
That happens in a number of different ways. And the Bible describes a couple of them that we can read right here. So that's a tree with, or a plant with some wilted leaves on it. There, it's, there's a, a withering of our purpose in life. We read about it in a couple of ways. That the curse, that the problem with us is, it, uh, happens in yeah, just a couple of different ways. So one of the ways that we see it is with when women are being fruitful and are in labor with child there's going to be a lot more resistance and hurt and pain and heartache that goes along with that because of the curse. Then when you also see that fruitfulness happen with men's labor, just with a different kind of fruit in the fields. And there's a resistance in our work. And when we want to do good things in our jobs, it's like they just don't go forward like we know they could and they should. And we lose our fruitfulness in a lot of different ways. We also find out that Adam and Eve are now, I'm going to try this green. Well, brown would work. They're bare. They find out that they're naked, that they are not covered, that there was not supposed to be any distinction or separation between them and God or one another. There's supposed to be this amazing, beautiful kind of close relationship. But because of sin, now there's an awareness and there is an actual chasm between people. There needs to be some sort of covering to cover up that shame and that guilt that we've caused because of sin in our lives. And so there's, there's an uncovered state that we are stuck in. And one of the other things that we might notice is that there's now hostility in the world. There's hostility. There's spiritual hostility. There's hostility between us and people we know, and there's hostility that happens between communities and nations and tribes, and there's just all of this division and infighting that happens because of our sin. And we can, if we take the time to look at it, realize that all of these happen actually in all of our lives in some way, shape, or form. It's really, this infection has infested us extremely deeply, and this is sometimes uncomfortable to think about, but when we take the time to do it, it's, it's really important to see this is describing where we're really at. We see that um, in Romans 6.6, 6, it talks about how we have actually become slaves to this sin. It's so deeply in us that we don't even realize that we're following it sometimes. Sometimes we do realize it, and we just are slaves to it. We can't get away from it. We can't break free from it. We are trapped. We also see that it goes deeper, and in Romans 7, Paul says, I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. We, we just, even when we know the good thing that God has offered, sin has so infested us that we are unable to get out of it. We are stuck in it. And then in Jeremiah 17, 9, we can also read about that internal state, that really horrible place of our heart, and it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, it's beyond our control. It's beyond what we understand. The depth of our sin is extremely, extremely deep. I mean, we sometimes see, and I hope that we see, that we actively operate against God's good sometimes. We say, I know what God's good. I know he said this, but I want that. But our hearts are so desperately sick with this sin infest, uh, infection that sometimes we don't even realize that God has said something and we still fall short. We still miss his mark. We still miss the target. We still, still don't get there. Sometimes we just don't get all the way there. And we see things like what Jesus said, that adultery is not just that physical 
thing that happens, but it's actually a condition of the heart. When we look at a woman in lust, then it is adultery. Or murder, that it's not just killing someone, but it's actually hating someone. There's a condition that's so much deeper than our actions that is causing, that is just infested and we miss God's mark even when we think we know God's mark. And so the sin goes on and on and deeper and deeper and we're infected and we're infecting others. And this is a time in a, a Bible study where I would oftentimes pause and just let us process this because it takes time sometimes to realize how deep in sin we are. We can see the, the easy ones, but it takes time to really process that and be honest with ourselves and think about it. And as we start to realize how deep this problem is, we also start to realize that our condition is even worse than that and even worse than we know because there's no way for us to fix it on our own. We know what the problem is, maybe, if we listen to this and look at ourselves, but the problem is really just dire. Because when we try to fix it on our own, we're just as liable to make it worse than to actually help anything. When we try to take it into our own hands and try to make good on our own, we're just as likely to take the fruit as we are to take from the tree of life and make things worse. We also find that it doesn't help us to imagine our problems away to think, well, it's just an illusion. That doesn't even address the issue. Here we are in a problem. All of us see a problem, but just wishing it away won't work. It doesn't help us to blame other people, like Adam blames, blames Eve, like Eve blames the serpent, because even though someone may have instigated us or poked us, we've still taken part of sin at some point. And it doesn't help us to try to cover ourselves. Like Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with leaves. God still found them, still found their guilt. We're still guilty if we try to brush it off or justify it or pretend it isn't really that bad. And so what we find is that the Bible actually really hits our human condition right on the head, just like a hammer on a nail, right on the head. And it's really accurate than, than we might want to think or wish, or, yeah, just have to admit that we're that, that bad. The Bible describes our reality really well. And so we find what's wrong is not just that there's spiritual evil out there, but there's evil within us as well. We are in a wrong spot. And we need help really badly. And if the story stopped here, and that was it. <laughs> well, maybe I would be tempted too to look to other stories, to other solutions that the world offers. But the story doesn't stop here. And there is another side to all of this. Because there's another character in this story. There's God. And God doesn't give up. And he speaks. And he calls out and he helps mankind to figure out that we're wrong and point out that we're in the wrong, but then he wants to do something about it. And we find that it's actually right for this good God to protect his good and to bring justice to what is wrong. But we also find that he doesn't do that by giving up on us, but by providing a way, a means of rescue for Adam and Eve, but also for us. 
And we see a glimpse of that in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. And we'll just review it real quick. It says, this is, this is when uh, God is talking to the serpent. He says, I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So there's going to come an offspring. The woman's going to have a child who's going to have a child. Somewhere there's going to be an offspring who will crush the serpent's head, although this offspring gets bitten by a snake. And so God promises what the serpent just caused, what he just instigated, what we've all taken part of, God is going to fix it. He puts the seed of a hope right here. And so what we start to look out for is that, well, all of these things that went wrong are actually going to be made right. In fact, we start to look for, need to start to look for this offspring who is going to be a king and who is able to restore us back to kingship. One who is not taking us out of the garden, but restoring us back into it and, and giving us access back to God. Someone who can pro- provide life like a tree is alive. Someone who will bring fruitfulness back into our lives and purpose and meaning in all of the things that we do rather than grinding ourselves through our work and our labor to death we will have fruitfulness that can last forever through what god allows us to do we also need to find someone who will cover for us but not through leaves because that kind of a covering isn't what god accepted it was instead through sacrifice blood covering our sin that there will be a rescue And then we also find that he is going to provide peace. Offer the olive branch. Provide, he's going to be at peace with God and then provide peace for us with God and with one another. So we start to think, have I seen anyone that's done all this? And at that point in Genesis, the hunt is on. It's like, well, there's two offspring of this woman, but one disobeys God and kills the one that was actually doing all right, so it's not them. But then a third one's born, and so the hunt is on again. And then we read about his offspring, who do some really good things, but one dies, the curse is still there. And the next, and the next, and all of chapter 5 of Genesis is all the, the, seed, the offspring that are not, not the one. And then we get to know, and maybe we look up and think, maybe, maybe he's the one that's going to restore it but it's not. He fails right after the flood, and his children fail. And we read their genealogies and how they failed, and now humanity at the Tower of Babel has been split and fractured because they're all failing. And then Abraham comes along, and again, where our hopes are up, but then he messes up, and he takes of the tree and his own, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in his own way. And so it's not him, but God has promised an offspring. And so we look to his son, Isaac, but it's not him, and Jacob, but it's not him. We look to the, the 12 fathers of, of, of Israel, the forefathers, and, well, it's none of them. And we fast forward to Moses, and then we hope again, but it's not him. And then we get to King David, and, well, he builds a kingdom, and all these good things happen, but he fails. And then there's Solomon, and he builds the temple, but he fails. And then after them, all these kings fail again and again. And even God's family line that he said is going to provide this rescue seems to spiral into the same sin that we all have, being infected and infecting others. And so the the Old Testament actually ends on a really kind of cliffhanger. It's kind of a a horrible look down if you're looking for the offspring. It's like, when you find him, listen. Because if you don't, we're all in trouble. (laughs) 
It's really this cliffhanger of a verse. And so finally, finally, when we get to Matthew 1, we think, okay, what's next? And we look, and the first thing that is mentioned is that here is Jesus, the Messiah. He's in the right family line. He's of the right genealogy. Could this be him? And we start to find out about things that he's doing. And in fact, one of the first things in the story of Jesus is how the serpent, Satan, comes to him and offers him food, like there is fruit, and a temple and a kingdom. And he passes this time. And then as he passes and doesn't sin and doesn't sin for the rest of his life, we find him starting to reverse the curse in little pockets, healing people and forgiving sin. But then eventually he takes on the full responsibility for all of humanity's sin, for every one of our sin, no matter how deep and ugly our sin has been. For each of us, he dies on a cross. And he starts to go through all these things. He becomes the king so that our kingship can be restored. He becomes the way and the access to God so that we can have access to God. And he can give us new life because he raised to life and he can make us fruitful, like he said, by being grafted into the vine. And he covers our sin through his death on the cross as his blood is the sacrifice that can cover us. And then he produces a peace between us and God and with other people. And so we think, man, this is good, but how do I get to be a part of it? Well, there's two columns. Which one is going to be the one that produces blessing and which one is curse? This one, everything's going down. Here's a blessing. How do I get to be a part of the other column? How do I get to be a part of the blessing? Well, the way it happened in the Old Testament is to believe that this offspring would come. And that's when you believed in Yahweh, that he is going to produce this good again. And now that Jesus has come, the way to take part of this and be in that column is to believe that he has come, that Jesus is this offspring, that he has come to rescue us, that he has crushed the serpent's head. And it makes all the difference in our life here and for eternity, because God is going to have to deal with all the sin. God is going to deal with spiritual and human evil. And so, if we want to know that we are going to have that blessing for eternity, this is what the Bible offers, a choice. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 14, we read how God is going to deal with those who stay in the left column, in the curse column, in those who will not accept that Jesus is this offspring that God promised. It says that the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, who have not, that is, believed in Jesus as the offspring, was thrown into the lake of fire as well. Because God has to deal with the problem in his world. He has to protect his good, even if that means it's us. But there is a different rescue if we believe in Jesus Christ as well. 
But also remember that God has, is dealing with our human sin, either by taking care of it, destroying our sin, or by forgiving us and putting us into the blessing by believing in Jesus. But he also has to deal with the sin, uh, the, the, the spiritual evil that is going on in the world, and he will do that as well. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them, that is the nations, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had also been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the devil, just a few verses before that, is described as the serpent, as Satan, the deceiver. And so God will deal ultimately with the spiritual evil that causes problems in this world as well. And it has a beautiful result because of that. Just a glimpse again in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. It says, he will wait. I'm just, yeah. So I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be with them and be their God. Then here's what's restored. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. So it's a beautiful thing. Now we know that God is working to make things right. We know what the problem with this is, but we also now have the biblical worldview of what to to do about it, to believe in Jesus Christ as the rescuer and let him be our rescuer from the curse and into the blessing. So here's a few quick observations as we wrap up. We've all missed the target of God's goodness We've all made this mistake, and this isn't a judgment on any person because here I am introspectively admitting that too. We've all, if we are honest and real with ourselves, seen that God's diagnosis of what's wrong with the world is accurate. But we also see that God took the initiative with Adam and Eve to fix things, and he's provided the skins, and he also provides Jesus Christ on our behalf. And yet he gives us a free choice if we want to accept him or not, to accept or reject. He still gives us that dignity. There are eternal consequences, but you have to choose for yourself. Another general observation is that for us Christians, for those who have decided that Jesus is this offspring, that we need Jesus, that we invite him into our heart and our lives, then we can consider this, that In Genesis 4, sin is described as an animal overcoming humans. But remember in Genesis 1, humans were supposed to be the ones that ruled over the animal. So what we find is that when our kingship is restored to the way it's supposed to be, we actually have the authority and the strength and the power by God dwelling within us, the Spirit of God, to rule over sin. And that's a huge huge thing. It means that there is freedom from all kinds of things that trapped us. There's, there's freedom from our slavery to sin. John 8, 34 says, just really quickly, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who's, who sins is a slave to sin. But, I'm going to skip down to verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the Son, the offspring And if he sets you free when you believe in him, you are completely free. You don't have to be ruled over by sin anymore. And so choose that freedom. 
God is drawing us near to him. He's helping us to recognize our sin by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But he's also covering our sin and restoring so much that's broken in our world. And so as we just finish up kind of this trilogy, I just want us to, in conclusion, notice where we've been. We saw God build his perfect kingdom. We saw him make a place where we could be in his presence in the very first temple. But we've also seen from today that we've lost that. And we've fallen far from what we should be. We've seen God has been active and he's been lovingly, firmly, and faithfully working to restore people to a right relationship with him. And although this is God's story and we aren't the main characters, we have a place in it and we are invited to be a part of God's story here and now, to believe in Jesus, to experience his spirit recreating you, and to one day see God bringing his history to a beautiful, justice-filled, eternally good conclusion. And so this is an invitation to live that way day in and day out. And if you haven't made that decision to start with, to believe in Jesus Christ today. Because he is the resolution to what's wrong with us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you were... that you are willing to point us out and call to us that we are sinners and help us to realize that we have done so much wrong. But thank you that you didn't leave us there. And Jesus, we pray that in so many ways that we already see in ways that you will uncover if we allow your spirit to do your work in us, that you will restore us and fix us and change us and recreate us. Let us be that light to the world so that people can see what's going on, so that people will be attracted to the beautiful change that you're doing, even when it feels contrary to the way the world works, even when people say that can't possibly be the fix of what's wrong. God, may we be faithful to you and to accept your change in us on your terms so that we can see your good in our lives and in the rest of the world. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.